Good morning, Embassy Church. It's good to see all of you here this morning. I'm going to read several statements, and I want you to imagine yourself saying these statements. And as you imagine yourself saying them, I also want you to reflect on if you really mean what you're saying. So here we go. I believe in God, and I worship him. I have a faithful relationship with Jesus Christ. I am thankful that Jesus Christ saved me from my sins. I have a very good understanding of what I want all the time. My yes is always yes, and my no is always no. I ask for things, and I never regret what I ask for. I see so many wicked people in this world, and I am glad I'm not like them. Last statement. I am a sinner, and I regularly confess my sins to God. Were any of those convicting? There's an element of truth found in each statement that I find expressed in our text this morning, where we find a believer genuinely expressing his thoughts and feelings that don't completely reflect reality. Okay? And so we're going to dive into Jonah 2 this morning, but first we need to know what happened in Jonah 1. We need a recap for those uh, who have not read the chapter or those who weren't here two weeks ago. So previously in Jonah chapter 1, God calls the prophet Jonah to go to Nineveh and call out against it, this great city. Jonah flees to a city called Tarshish. Tarshish is in the opposite direction of Nineveh. He gets on a boat and then God hurls a wind the wind causes a sea storm. The sailors are terrified. The captain wakes up Jonah. He's asleep in the boat. Jonah, wa- uh, the captain wakes him up to call out to his God. The sailors on the boat, still terrified, they draw lots to figure out who's the cause. They discover the cause is Jonah. So Jonah tells them to hurl him into the sea to stop the storm. If at first the sailors don't do it, but then eventually they do. They hurl him off the ship, and then the storm stops. The sailors convert And for the first time, they worship the one true God, our God, Yahweh. Okay, so that's how Jonah chapter 1 ends. There's a lot of movement in the last chapter. And all of that movement stops here in in chapter 2. Okay, most of Jonah 1 is loud. And most of Jonah 2 is quiet. So we're going to read Jonah chapter 2 this morning, you'll find, it, uh, find the text on page 726, 726 in your Black Pew Bibles. So we're going to read Jonah chapter 2 together. Please follow along as I read, and I'm going to start with uh, verse 17 in the previous chapter. So this is the word of the Lord. Verse 17, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, 
I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. The weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of a steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Last verse, verse 10. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. So this is the word of the Lord. Main idea this morning. Main idea of the message. Here it is. Because God saved us through his judgment, we praise him through our thanks. Because God saved us through his judgment, we praise him through our thanks. So our text this morning begins in verse 17, which reads, and we just read it, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. So our text begins with God doing something that no one else, especially the people in this room, can do. Appoint a fish. None of you here can appoint a fish. No one can appoint a fish. No one can hurl the wind. God can. So God can, and that's what he does. So the question is, why did he appoint a great fish? Why did he appoint a fish? The text immediately tells us to swallow Jonah. God appointed a fish to swallow Jonah. The language here of swallow is of judgment. Okay, it's of judgment. That's what it usually is in the Old Testament. Many times a non-human performs this act, a non-human. And it's usually a sign of God's wrath. And uh, I'll provide one instance of where it applies to God himself. Psalm 21.9 reads, the Lord will swallow them up in his wrath and the fire will consume them. So the image here is judgment and wrath. Here's what's interesting for those who've read chapter one. You know that Jonah would have died without the fish, right? He would have died without the fish. He's plummeting into the deep water, the deep sea waters in the middle of a storm. He's drowning, there's no oxygen. Jonah in chapter one showed clear signs that he wanted to die and the water itself would have done the job. So why did God appoint a great fish to swallow Jonah? Throughout the prayer, which we'll go through, we're going to see tension between two possibilities, two opposing themes, two interpretations, two concepts. Okay? The great fish is either a vehicle for judgment or the fish is a vehicle for salvation. The reason there's tension is because these two ideas seem to conflict with one another. I'll give you the first of many examples here. Why did Jonah wait three full days before he said anything to God? This question draws us to two things, and here's the first first thing it draws us to. Three days and three nights is long enough for you to not survive in an animal. True statement? 
So you decide to check out that, the Shedd Aquarium in, in, in the city of Chicago, okay? You go and you somehow, you somehow end up on the other side of the glass in the waters, okay? And you get swallowed whole by one of Shedd Aquarium's uh, sandbar sharks or their beluga whales, okay? This would never happen to you, probably. But let's say this happens, okay? And it takes the Shedd employees, it takes them 30 seconds to get you out. Chances of survival. I'd say it's pretty good, 30 seconds pretty good. What if it takes the Shedd Aquarium employees three days to get you out of the animal? Chances of survival? Not as good, right? Not as good. Jonah is swallowed by a large sea creature and assumes he will die quickly. So one day and one night passes, he's alive. Two days and two nights pass, he's still alive. Three days and three nights pass, and he's probably thinking, am I still alive? The first thing is that three days and three nights is long enough for you to not survive in an animal, yet Jonah survives. He's alive. Okay, and here's the second thing that the question draws us to. One commentator suggests an ancient Semitic myth about the underworld, okay, and how it took three days and three nights to make a complete journey there from your earthly life to the realm of the dead, Sheol, death and Sheol, Three days and three nights. So the three days and three nights language solidifies to us as the readers that Jonah's journey to the underworld was complete. So the two things I just explained provide the first tension we see in the text. Did you all see what that tension was? Do the three days and three nights emphasize how Jonah is alive? Or does that emphasize how Jonah is dead? The rest of the message this morning is going to be like this, as we expound on the prayer. Two-sided interpretations, opposing themes, tension after tension after tension. You also need to understand where this tension is occurring mentally, psychologically, right? Jonah is so close to death, so barely conscious that he couldn't tell if he was actually dead or alive. There are indicators in the text that strongly suggest that he's going in and out of consciousness, that he's losing consciousness, so the way we're going to understand Jonah's prayer this morning is to first see what the prayer says. Okay, we're going to see what the prayer says verse by verse. Then we're going to see, we're going to go back and see what the prayer is. And then finally, we're going to see what the prayer shows us. Okay, so that's what we're going to do. We're going to see what the prayer says. We're going to then see what the prayer actually is. And then we're going to see what the prayer shows us this morning. So we're just going to start with what the prayer says. Verse 2, I'll read it to you all. Please follow along. Verse 2. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. So if you're familiar with Jonah chapter 1, you're probably thinking at this point, finally, finally, you did it. Jonah does what the pagan ship captain told him to do when he woke him up from his death-like sleep. Hey, call out to your God. Jonah doesn't do that the remainder of the time in chapter 1, and finally you see him uh, do it in chapter 2, I called out to the Lord, finally. But Jonah here is a speak, he's speaking in the past tense. Did you all, all notice that? He called, God answered, he cried, God heard, past tense. So in this prayer, Jonah prays, but he doesn't ask for anything. But he says he received. Jonah is praying as if God already did something. So what we come to find out is that Jonah chapter 2 is actually Jonah's second prayer. And you're probably thinking, 
when, was, when did you pray the first time? It's, it's off screen. It's, it's unrecorded. Okay? It's a prayer of petition to deliver him between chapters 1 and 2. A prayer of petition to deliver him, but deliver him from what? From death? Does he want to be delivered from the mission to the Ninevites, which was his original mission in chapter 1? Which still is his mission, by the way, from God. This is, where you see, this is where you start to see that tension again. Remember, it seemed like Jonah wanted to die in chapter 1. Did he change his mind in chapter 2? You know, once he actually tasted death and the fish rescued him? Did he change his mind? Or does Jonah still want to die? And the fish itself is death. Death swallowed him. Is Jonah grateful God delivered him from death? Or is he grateful God delivered him from earthly life? In either case, Jonah feels like he was delivered from something. We're talking about deliverance here, and it causes us here in, at Embassy Church to reflect. You know, it's hard to pinpoint exactly what Jonah wanted to be del- delivered from, but what about you all? What about you? When was the last time you prayed for deliverance? God, I am calling out to you. God, I am crying out to you. Please, Lord, deliver me. Please, Lord, save me. Do you have this feeling like something has swallowed you up this morning? Maybe it's your personal habitual sin that swallowed you. Maybe you lack something, something you really want, something you've wanted for years, and you still don't have it. Maybe you're a functional atheist. And you don't care for God, but at the same time, you don't care for God, but at the same time, you want more fulfillment in your life. What do you need to be delivered from this morning? And when was the last time you talked to God about it? This is something crucial believers need to know, all of us here. In verses 1 and 2, Jonah is basically saying that his prayer caused his deliverance. You all see that? His prayer caused his deliverance. But as readers, as believers, we see that God's deliverance caused his prayer. I hope that's encouraging to all of you, right? It is because God saved us from death that we praise him in our thanks. We pray because God has delivered us. To say this more bluntly, God didn't save you because you asked him to. God saved you because he saved you. God saved you because he saved you. In the next two verses, you're going to see Jonah sharing with God his own personal experience of what happened in the previous chapter, okay? So what you're you're beginning to see in verses 3 and 4 is Jonah's own interpretation, his own interpretation of what happened in Jonah 1. So in verse 3, in verse 3, Jonah says, God cast him into the deep. In Jonah 1, who hurled Jonah into the sea? The sailors. The sailors did. So on the one hand, Jonah is proclaiming God's sovereign hand in what just took place. The the sailors proclaimed this back in verse 14. They said, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. Jonah hears a little late, but he still affirms it. So on the one hand, Jonah recognizes God's sovereign control and role. On the other hand, on the other hand, Jonah takes no responsibility for what he's done so far. Why did the sailors hurl Jonah into the sea? Because he told them to. He told them to do it because he was running away from the presence of God. Because 
the storm in chapter 1 was his fault, which he admitted to. So, in verse 3, is Jonah glorifying God and his power, or is he presenting himself as a victim? He does this again in verse 4. Verse 4, he refers to his previous prayer about how he was driven away from God's sight. Driven away. Again, Jonah chapter 1, who drove Jonah away from the sight of God, from the presence of the Lord? Jonah. Jonah did. God said, arise and go. Jonah arose, so far so good, and he fled. Jonah is reinterpreting to God, of all people, what happened in the previous chapter. Okay, so this is the picture I see. So a mom tells her son, you know, not to touch the cookie jar. The child knocks over the cookie jar, and he screams at the top of his lungs. And the mom walks up. She, had just, she just saw what happened. And she walks up, and the child turns to his mom, and he says, oh, mother, the jar fell over, and I cried out to you. It's like, yeah, but no, no. After saying all this, Jonah says he will look upon God's holy temple. Okay? He will look upon God's holy temple. Another way of saying that, God's presence. That's where God is. Again, there are two ways to interpret this depending on what you think Jonah is thinking. Okay? So by holy temple, Jonah could be saying that he wants to go home. He wants to go home. The physical temple is in Jerusalem. It's back in Israel. So he, he doesn't want to go to Nineveh. He wants to go home. He wants to go back to his homeland, and he wants to go back alive. But by holy temple, Jonah could also be saying that he wants to look upon God's spiritual temple. God's true heavenly dwelling place, right? He says this back in verse 9 uh, in the previous chapter. He says, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven. So where does Jonah want to be? Does he want to be alive in Jerusalem or not alive in heaven? Tension. Jonah continues to explain to God what happened at the end of chapter 1. Okay, so this is verses 5 and 6. In verses 5 and 6, Jonah is describing what he saw at the end of chapter 1. Again, okay, he's describing it in sequence. So look at verse 5. Waters closed in as he entered the water. Then the deep surrounded him as he plummeted into the sea, right? Up, down, left, right, water, deep, he's surrounded. Then he finds weeds around his head. Where do you find seaweed? At the bottom, at the bottom of the sea. So he's now descended from the surface into the deep and down to the bottom of the deep. And then he starts talking about these mountains. What are these mountains? What is he talking about? So again, in ancient Semitic mythology, there was a belief that two mountains established the borders to the gate to the underworld. Okay? This kind of deathly place that Jonah is describing, it really sounds like a prison. He's describing a prison. The idea, is that right? Once you enter this place, you don't, you don't just get to leave whenever you want. In fact, he says forever, whose bars closed upon me forever. Metaphorically, we all actually agree with this, right? So when you die, you don't come back to life. Especially if you've been dead for three days, right? If you've been dead for three days, you're not coming back to life. It's impossible. It's impossible Yet Jonah says something interesting at the end of verse 6. This is what he says at the end of verse 6. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. So this is the turning point in the prayer. Okay, This is the turning point. With the turning point, you would think 
that he's now going to talk more about God, about what he's done. Instead, Jonah is now going to speak more about himself and his own works, his own efforts, and his own piety in verses 7 through 9. So, 7 through 9, I'll I'll read the first half of verse 7, which begins with, When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. In the Old Testament, when we're talking about remembering between God and man, it's usually God who does the remembering, okay? In the chaos and the brokenness in this world, it is God who remembers us. When you feel like you've been forgotten in just the the brokenness and the chaos, it is God who remembers us, right? The Noah flood story is is a famous example. There's there's chaos and death everywhere, and then Genesis 8-1 reads, but God remembered Noah, and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark, and God made the wind blow over the earth, and the water subsided. So God, our God, remembers his people. Prophet Jonah says in verse 7, I remembered the Lord. The ancient readers who are reading this, who are also probably familiar with the Hebrew scriptures, would have just thought, really, Jonah? Really? And then Jonah starts talking about these people who pay regard to vain idols. Who's he talking about? Who are those people? Those people, the most obvious answer is is that he's talking about the pagan sailors that he was just with in Jonah chapter 1. So here's what Jonah didn't see. After they hurled Jonah off the ship, verse 16 reads, Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and they made vows. Ironic, isn't it? It's even more ironic that Jonah hasn't done either of those things, okay? He says he will in chapter one, in chapter, or chapter two. Chapter one, he doesn't do it. Chapter two, chapter one, he doesn't do it. Chapter two, he says he'll do it. Chapters three and four, you'll see that he doesn't do it. He still doesn't do it. So that aside, Jonah is essentially saying here, this is what he's really saying. When I get out of this mess, then I will demonstrate my obedience to God through sacrifice and vows. I don't think we're that different from Jonah. I think believers today have a tendency to think this exact same way, right? We first demonstrate patterns of disobedience and abandonment toward God. Then we have these kinds of thoughts. When I, when I get this done, then I will obey God. When this happens, when my situation changes, when I, when I feel like I'm ready, when the conditions of my own terms are met, then I will show my faithfulness to God. When I'm comfortable, when he gives me what I want, what I've been asking for, then I will show God that I love him. Then I will love others in my life. Have any of you felt that way before? Or maybe it's just Jonah. Jonah proclaims his good works, his piety. In verses 7 through 9, he's pretty much saying, I remember God. I pray to God's holy temple. I don't pay regard to vain idols. I don't worship or forsake hope of steadfast love. I, with the voice of thanksgiving, make sacrifices and pay vows. Me, me, me. I, I, I. My, my, my. All throughout the prayer. Embassy, praying for yourself and about yourself, it's not, it's not wrong. 
But in light of Jonah's selfishness in chapter 1, you continue to see his selfishness in his numerous references to himself in his chapter 2 prayer. That's the problem. That's the problem. And then he concludes his self-centered prayer with, salvation belongs to the Lord. Prayer is complete. And some of you are probably disgusted by what Jonah has been saying. Some of you are thinking, I am so sick of this prayer. You know, the fish appear to have felt that exact same way. Literally, verse 10, the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. The fish didn't bring him, spit him, deliver him into the dry land. After hearing his prayer and then God's command, the fish threw up. It vomited. So we finally finish what his prayer says. Now we have to see what the prayer is. Okay, so we first saw what the prayer says. Now we need to know what the prayer is, and then we'll see what the prayer shows us. So here's what the prayer is. Okay, the prayer is a psalm. It's a psalm. It's a psalm of thanks. A psalm of thanks. What you probably didn't know is that the majority of this prayer, this psalm of thanks, is a collection of Bible verses from a bunch of other psalms in the book of Psalms. So what does that mean? Most of Jonah's words are not even his own words. Most of what we just read together is either a direct quotation or a clear allusion to a psalm in the Bible. So I'll give you, I'll give you there's a, numerous, I'll give you the first instance, okay? The first half of verse 2 is a direct quotation of Psalm 120, verse 1. Psalm 20, the psalm, is a song of ascent. So songs of ascent were sung by the Jews during their pilgrimage to Jerusalem every year. Okay, so all of you, look at Jonah, chapter, or Jonah 2, verse 2. I'm going to read Psalm 120, verse 1. Okay, so here's Psalm 120, verse 1. A song of ascent, in my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. It's almost verbatim. Almost verbatim. See, the irony, though, the irony is that we saw how misleading Jonah's prayer could be. So one interpretation is that Jonah comes off lying. He comes off lying or being deceitful in his prayer. He said God cast him out into the sea. He was driven away. He was driven away from God's sight. We know what really happened in Jonah chapter 1. And if you were to continue reading Psalm 120, right, if you were to continue reading the psalm, Verse 2 reads like this. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. It appears that Jonah cherry-picked this one Bible verse out of its context, maybe because the context of, one, uh, of Psalm 120 would reveal what Jonah is doing. And that's just one example. One example. For time's sake, for those interested, I'll provide all of the all of the psalm citations uh, for each verse of this prayer in the, psalm, the sermon description on our church website. There, there are too many to cover t- uh, this morning here. But that's what the prayer is. The, Jonah's prayer is a psalm of thanks, and it's a collection of various verses from the book of Psalms out of context, misapplied to Jonah's situation. One thing I will give credit for, one thing I'll admit, is that Jonah has become a master in memorizing the psalms. Master 
the author may be implying that he memorized all 150 psalms. The traditional, the traditional interpretation of Jonah 1 and 2 is that Jonah runs away, and then he gets swallowed by a whale. In the whale, Jonah says, I'm sorry, I repent, and then the whale spits him out, and then he goes to, on and toward his mission. So that's the more famous rendering of our Jonah story. That's probably the Jonah story that you're all familiar with. We just went through what the prayer says and what the prayer is, so I have to ask all of you, at what point does Jonah say he's sorry? When does he apologize for what he's done and thought so far? When does Jonah confess his sins? When does Jonah repent? Repent. Repent means to proclaim that you will no longer keep sinning the same sin. That's repentance. Repent means to turn from your sin and then turn to God. Repent. Turn from your sin and turn to God. What's noteworthy is that after Jonah's talking in verse 10, God doesn't, God doesn't talk to Jonah. Who does he talk to? Talks to the fish. Why doesn't, why doesn't God talk to Jonah? Why doesn't he speak to him? One Old Testament scholar believes that it's because Jonah's prayer justifies himself while lacking repentance. God recognizes this by not speaking to Jonah. He speaks to the fish. Our main idea this morning is because God saved us through his judgment, we praise him through our thanks. But if I had two, if I had two main ideas this morning, this would be the second one. Because God saved us through his judgment, we confess our sins and repent of our wicked ways. Main idea number two. We confess our sins and repent of our wicked ways. See, we see that missing in Jonah's life. Do you see this missing in your life? Is that, is that what's missing in your life? Eddie this morning prayed a beautiful prayer of confession. Jonah's prayer doesn't sound like that. It doesn't sound like that. Throughout Jonah 1 and 2, Jonah does not demonstrate any intent or indication to repent of his sins. At the same time, Jonah acknowledges his ongoing relationship with his God. Yeah, he ran away, yes, he, but at the same time expresses his ongoing relationship with God and expresses thanksgiving for God's actions, something that God has not yet done yet. So that's what the prayer says. We saw what the prayer is, and now we're going to see what the prayer shows us. Okay? So this is, this is one thing the prayer shows us. The prayer first shows us that we don't want repentance, but dependence. We don't want repentance, but dependence. We want to depend on our God, but we don't want to repent to him. It forces us to think about how most nominal Christians today think of God and their own faith. Unrepentant, self-proclaimed faith in Christ. The prayer also shows us just how broken, just how broken Jonah is. There's so much contradiction and conflict and delusion and tension. I mean, Jonah, 
Jonah, is the fish a vehicle for God's judgment or God's deliverance and salvation? Jonah, do you want to go back home and see God's physical temple or do you want to go to heaven and see God's spiritual temple? Do you acknowledge God's sovereignty in your life or are you just a victim? What kind of salvation are you talking about at the end of your prayer? Salvation from death or salvation from the reality of life that you've been running away from this entire time? Do you want life or do you want death? Which is it? What do you want? What do you want? I think the tension of the text reflects the tension going inside Jonah's heart. And I think the tension inside Jonah's heart reveals the tension going on inside our own hearts. I think there's a tension inside all of us. One tension I think we all have is how we want God, but at the same time, we don't want him. Sometimes we use God to avoid him. So we use, like Jonah, God's word to avoid obeying God's word. The prayer shows us that Jonah knows how to say all the right things. Bible-centered believers, like most of you here at this church, also know, all of you know how to say all the right things. Some of us, instead of worshiping the Christian God, would rather worship the Christian religion. Do you all know the difference? We say all the right things, act like our lives have no issues, we smile and only say nice things at church, and then when we go home, we're a wreck. We're a wreck. You occasionally pray in public, but you don't talk to God at all when you're alone. If this is true for you, if this is true for you, then maybe you need to ask yourself, if you're not worshiping the Christian God, but instead you're worshiping the Christian religion. Here's what the prayer also shows us. It shows us that our God is so incredibly gracious. It shows us that our God is so gracious, he is willing to hear, he's willing to hear our imperfect, self-delusional prayers. We speak, he listens. And he responds. Even in our warped perception of ourselves, like Jonah, not only does God allow us the capacity to talk to him, but when we do talk to him, he's willing to listen to us. Like a loving father, where he'll listen to us. What an amazing, an amazing loving father that that we worship. The last thing that Jonah 2 shows us is how Jonah, yes, Jonah, how he prefigures our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And you're probably thinking, Jonah? Really? There are actually a lot of indicators in the passage, but I'll give you one, and it's one of the more subtle textual clues, okay? It's it's a very subtle textual clue where as a Christian, once you see it, you really can't unsee it. So I'm going to show it to you all. The clue is in the first verse of the prayer. Go back to verse 2, all the way to verse 2 where Jonah says, out of the belly of Sheol. So that word belly can just as commonly be understood as womb, as a woman's womb. This Hebrew phrase, belly of Sheol, womb of Sheol, is an expression 
that no one else in the entire Bible uses. It's almost like Jonah made up this like, metaphorical phrase. The phrase doesn't occur anywhere else in the Bible. However, however, there is one place in the, in the New Testament where death is presented as having a womb. And in that passage, death with a womb is pregnant. Did you guys know all this? What if I told you that this extremely rare one-time metaphor was used in the first Christian sermon ever? In Acts 2, the Apostle Peter preaches the first ever recorded Christian sermon during the Pentecost. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 24, he describes death as having birth pains. Okay? The image is, you know, imagine this, pregnant death trying to prevent a baby from coming out, a child. But this preborn child would not be held by it. The child breaks through. The child breaks through and gets out, no longer held within the womb of death. This implied image of this child represents someone. Do you all know who that is? The resurrected Jesus Christ. How The metaphor shows us how death could not keep our Lord and Savior Jesus dead. Death could not keep Jesus dead. Jonah was in the belly of Sheol, the womb of Sheol, for three days, and afterward was brought back to life. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 40, which we heard this morning from Eddie, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The sign of the prophet Jonah that Jesus spoke of earlier, that Jesus would, that, that, this is what this means, the sign of Jonah, is that Jesus would die for our sins. He would die on the cross in our place, die even though he did not deserve death. And after being dead, like really dead, for three days, on the third day, he would come back to life. That's the sign. That's the sign. Earlier, I said that it was impossible for a dead man to not be dead after three days. The God-man we worship, the God-man we worship, Jesus Christ, did the impossible. He raised himself up from the dead and conquered death. We as believers stand in awe of how amazing he is, undeniably recognizing that something greater than Jonah is here. He's here. We have been trying to decide this entire time with Jonah, whether Jonah was being judged by God or saved by God. But on the cross, God the Father, the righteous judge, judged his one and only son. He poured out his wrath on him, the wrath that we deserved. The wrath should have been poured out onto us, but instead wrath was poured out onto his own son, and it was through Christ's substitutionary atonement. Big word, substitutionary, meaning a substitute in our place, atonement to make right a previous wrong. It was through Christ's substitutionary atonement that we are saved. Embassy, we have been saved through the judgment of God, only, only made possible through the blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And because God saved us through his judgment, now we praise him through our thanks. God didn't show us grace in response to heavenly praise, but we shout heavenly praise in response to the grace that God has chosen to flood us with. We're singing songs this morning during our service. We're not doing that 
in order to gain salvation, you have been saved, and now you're praising him through your thanks. The tension in Jonah 2 is whether Jonah is really alive or really dead. But there is no tension with Christ. Jesus Christ is alive now. And he sits at the right hand of God in heaven now. And he sent his helper, the, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, who dwells in you now. Whatever tension is going inside of you this morning, know, know this, you are not alone anymore. You're not alone anymore. God the Holy Spirit is with you and in you, and he sustains your life, and he sustains your eternal life, and he comforts your soul. He comforts your soul. Jonah was thankful for a full deliverance he has not yet experienced. We as Christian believers, Christ followers, we are thankful for a deliverance that we have experienced. You have experienced this. We, we have been reborn. We have been reborn, birthed out of the womb of death, of Sheol, and we've been born again into life by and with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Salvation belongs not to Jonah, not to us. Salvation belongs to Jesus Christ. So please pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your judgment and thank you for your salvation. We thank you just your immeasurable grace that you showed to your prophet Jonah and the same immeasurable grace that you flood us with in our lives today. And sometimes we don't feel it, but you know that it's there. So we thank you so much for your love and your grace and your mercy. Thank you for hearing this prayer that I'm praying right now. We know that you can hear this and that you're listening. Just thank you so much for who you are and thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who paid the penalty for our sins and conquered death and is our Lord and Savior today. So thank you so much. In your son, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.